We live in an unprecedented era of tennis genius. Oh, that is unbelievable. And it just keeps on getting better. Oh, what a scorching return. Analysis, debate, and exclusive interviews. Can you believe it? This is the Tennis Weekly Podcast with Adam Bates. It's a record equaling seventh Wimbledon title for Roger Federer as he classily crushes the aspirations of Andy Murray and fans of British tennis for another year. As well as hearing from the players themselves, we speak to Federer's biographer on just what it means to the 17-time major winner, while we also get reaction from Murray's home city of Dunblane. There was one British Wimbledon champion over the weekend, though. We speak exclusively to the man at the centre of a fairy tale story in the men's doubles, Johnny Murray, as well as saluting Serena Williams as she goes from hospital bed to a fifth Wimbledon singles crown. All that and a staggering amount more on Tennis Weekly. Tennis Weekly is a Sky Sports News Radio podcast. Reflecting with me in disbelief at what we've witnessed in the last fortnight is Sky Sports commentator Barry Milnes. And Barry, the final ended with the new world number one, Roger Federer, equaling Pete Sampras's record of seven Wimbledon titles as he took it 4-6-7-5-6-3-6-4 over Andy Murray. And first of all, Barry, what an immense achievement that is for him. Remarkable, isn't it, that he can come back a couple of years on from his last major title and some have written him off saying he's past it, he's over 30, there'd be no more majors for him, there'd be no more number one ranking. But here he is now standing on top of the tennis world again with uh, an incredible performance today. I really do feel that he had to play some of his very finest tennis that he's ever played to get through this match against Andy Murray, who was a, a real credit to himself. The way he took it to Federer from the start, as we've all said, and he felt really that he knew he had to go out Federer hard at the start and so he did and it became from that it became a, an epic tussle and it had so much drama so much fantastic shot making and skill and of course a great atmosphere here and also up on the hill. Yeah, it certainly was and listeners outside the UK I'm sure you'll understand us focusing heavily on Andy Murray for the moment because we have been waiting for a men's singles winner since Fed Perry in 1936 after all. We will be hearing from Roger Federer shortly but first here's the runner-up fighting back the tears following his fourth Grand Slam final defeat. Oh yeah, it's tough. Um, today is pretty hard because you're, you know, you're playing in front of, you know, a crowd like that. You're playing in front of, you know, your family's there as well. Well, you, like your whole family has come to come to watch. So yeah, it's it's tough. I mean, I'd be playing, I guess, probably the the wrong sport if I wasn't emotional. <laughs> After all that's happened this fortnight, how much closer do you feel to uh, achieving your ultimate goal? I don't know. Um, you know, it's tough to kind of assess after you just come off the court, but I'd say that's the best I've played in the slam final. Barry, it was gut-wrenching, wasn't it, watching him so upset along with his box during his speech? It was. I mean, everybody's emotions stirred by that. But to, to bear his soul in, in such a public way, to really show the depths of feeling that he has for this game, his absolute love of the sport and the competition, and how much it meant to him to be performing in a Wimbledon final for the first time, you just heart goes out to him, I'm sure. And maybe there were some who perhaps before didn't really understand them. And I hope that's given them a great insight into uh, how great a guy he really is. And uh, as tough as he finds it in the spotlight, and it couldn't have been tougher than it was there. I mean, he was a real credit to himself, I thought. There was almost an incomprehensible amount of pressure on Murray from 
almost all quarters, and even though he says he doesn't really feel the exterior pressure. But few would have been cheering him on harder than his supporters in his home city of Dunblane in Scotland, which has a population of less than 10,000. And I spoke to Gemma and then John, two of the 250 or so watching at the Dunblane Sports Centre. But first, Callum, who says it felt like the whole city came together. Oh, it definitely does. You know, um, although he doesn't live here, you see his mum around the place and his relatives, you know, working the high street and everything. So when this kind of event does happen, everybody knows everybody, everybody comes together. This place is becoming pretty iconic for showcasing his events and the pubs as well in Dunblane will be completely packed. Having just watched him doing his trophy ceremony speech, you just saw yeah. how much it meant to him there, didn't you? Yep, he was very emotional. So were a lot of people here. I managed to contain myself. Yeah, it means the world to him. He'll get there in the end. We're so proud of Andy. He put up such a good fight. He did not make it easy for Roger at all. And it was a great, great match to watch. Um, and we're extremely, extremely proud of him. I think he's done Dublin and Scotland and, and Great Britain very, very proud. And what was the feel like? What was the ambience like inside the centre when he won that first set? It was incredible. I mean, we had so many people here. Um, there was cheering. We had people waving banners. Um, we had loads of kids here supporting as well. So the atmosphere was just incredible. But how tense did it get towards the end? It was very tense. It was very nail-biting. But, I mean, that's what um, we've come to expect. Would you just like to tell me what it's been like living through the past four hours or so? <laughs> Um, I probably ate about for 10 years, I think, to be honest with you. Um, there was parts of it I couldn't, I couldn't watch because the tension was so great, but it's been a fantastic day. The centre was, was absolutely cramp-packed full with support for Andy, and every shot that he, he played and won was, was applauded. Just a shame the result wasn't slightly different. Everyone's behind him. The place was absolutely full capacity. Dunblane was like a ghost town between the two and six o'clock today. Everyone's behind him, everyone respects him, and everyone's so proud of what he's achieved. Refreshingly optimistic Andy Murray fans back home in Dunblane. So, Barry, let's get into the nitty-gritty of the final. Murray started comparatively nervelessly, and he got the break at just the right time to take the first set. And after that, there were several key moments that went Federer's way. But for me... None more so than when he won a 20-minute game to break for 4-2 in the third set. That was the turning point, wasn't it? It was. It, it Well, it, it had it all there. Had Murray managed to withstand that game, and he so, so nearly did, then maybe there would have been a different outcome to that third set, and who knows how it would have gone from there. You could also look back, perhaps, at that game in the, uh, the previous set when he had uh, the breakpoint opportunities against Federer when uh, it was, I think, for all the score and he had a couple of break points and he just, just couldn't get them. He made a missed one backhand particularly that uh, maybe he'll look back on. But really, he will be tough on himself, gutted to have lost it, having got the opportunity for the first time to, to shoot for the title. But as you say, coming back to the game you mentioned, I mean, what a game, what, what stroke play from both incredible depth of shots with such pace and yet, you know, chasing them down. And Murray, how many times? did we see him you know chase down and put an extra ball or two back in play which you really thought Federer had got the winning of the point already and then he had that really heavy fall and another in that game and yet he still came up still fighting and then for me the absolute perhaps the, the, the whole crux of it was when he then just suddenly burst with emotion in anger and you saw him for the first time and he's kept himself mentally so strong through this fortnight yeah. that ultimately he just sort of looked up to his box and he he bellowed in frustration and, and, and sort of verbally just was so angry with uh, his, his misfortune perhaps to not to have got through that game. And that, for me, was the, the key moment. 
Yeah, it's it's important that you've mentioned this because it has been a clear improvement in his game, his temperament. That's oh, what yes. Lendl has partly been brought in to work on. But there was a marked difference in the body language, wasn't there, between the two players for a while after Federer broke for 4-2 in the third set in a way which was nearly reminiscent of his semi-final against Nadal last year. And against Federer, you just can't allow that to happen, can you? No, uh, you really can't. And I mean, the intensity of the thing right from the very first ball of the day, uh, right through to that moment and right through to the end of the match. I mean, Murray kept fighting, but just that slight thing. And, and that just shows the quality of Federer that, you know, the supreme champion that he is, you know, he can buy his time. And then when that moment comes, he, he knows it, he senses it. And he goes for the jugular, and that's what he did. Looking at Murray, his forehand on occasions proved to be a more potent part of his armoury, which is one of the things, again, that Lendl has been brought in to work on. But what would you have liked to have seen him do more of? Well, I think two areas that, that uh, he was uh, struggling on, perhaps, I say struggling, that, that's uh, relatively speaking. Yeah. He, he served terrifically well through to get through the, to the final, and indeed served pretty darn well in the final. His second serve on occasions was still... A little short of pace and that allowed Federer just to either chip and charge it without any pressure and then immediately put pressure on Andy or or he hit it really hard and angled it and then again you're, you know you're chasing after the ball straight away but I think the one shot perhaps where he's struggling at the moment is that that he needs to find a way and maybe it's something to do with the way he grips the racket is that running forehand wide to try and hit that back up the line he can do it cross court he can hook the ball back on him and he does it sensationally but if he's forced out wide and he's you know Federer is covering covering that cross court to get it past him up the line over the high part of the net or even round the net post if he's very wide he's done it on occasion but there were many times today when when you just felt Federer was going into that wing hard because he knew that that would probably be the outcome that Andy wouldn't be able to bring be able to put it back in play Let's give Federer his due now then. Following his 75th career title win on the grandest stage of all, Roger had this to say. Honestly, this one hasn't quite sunk in yet for some reason, you know. Um, I guess I was trying to be so focused in the moment itself that when it all happened, I was just so happy, you know, that it was all over and that the pressure was, you know, gone, basically. I guess that came due to the tough loss I had here last year, um, US Open as well. It's a couple of tough, you know, moments for me the last uh, couple of years, you know, I guess. And uh, so I really almost didn't try to picture myself with a trophy or try to believe, you know, to, to think too far ahead, really. So now, even right now, I mean, there was there was so much on the line. So I didn't try to think of, you know, the world number one ranking or the seventh or the seventeen. So I think that's going to actually, for a change, it's going to take much longer to understand what I was able to achieve today. And um, yeah, it was crazy how it all happened, you know, under the circumstances. So, uh, yeah, I played, played terrific. Well, I'm fortunate enough now to speak to somebody who knows more about Roger Federer than any of us. And that's his biographer, Chris Bowers. And Chris, he's lived up to the title of your book today, hasn't he? Roger Federer, The Greatest. Yes, I mean, I suspect that it's less of a milestone than his uh, 15th title was uh, three years ago because that was the one that took him ahead of Pete Sampras. This is more of a milestone because it takes him back to world number one. Um, but it just cements his position as the greatest. I think many people were still happy to call him the greatest even with 16 titles. The fact that so many people have written him off over the last couple of years and he's now come back not just to take a, another Wimbledon title, but to go back to the top of the rankings, I think is a tremendous achievement. 
Well, let's list a few more numbers. He played in a record 24th Grand Slam final, equaling Sampras's record of seven Wimbledon titles, extends his tally of major titles to 17 and returns to the world number one spot. Perhaps most importantly, and will go on to beat the Americans' record of 286 weeks at the top. And he does care about these astonishing figures, doesn't he? He does. You know, for me, the, the greatest statistic is one you didn't mention there, and that's the fact that he's been in 33 consecutive Grand Slam quarterfinals and uh, been to the semifinals or better of 30 of them. That, for me, is a remarkable statistic because it says that here's a guy who just doesn't slack off. He has a couple of you know, weeks off between the major tournaments, but when the majors come round, he always performs. And therefore, I don't think we should be surprised that he's uh, won another Grand Slam title because really he's hung around. And yes, he's had to watch while last year Djokovic and the year before Nadal got the better of him. But, you know, we know what Nadal uh, goes through to produce his best form. Djokovic is also a lot more energy intensive. And when they just let off the gas pedal, as inevitably they do, they're Federer at the same level uh, able to cash in. And who knows, maybe he can pick up another couple of titles over the next couple of years as a result of exactly the same syndrome, just holding his level and saying to the other guys, come on, can you really keep up that amazing level? Yeah, it is remarkable. It's already his fifth title of the year, and he's not won more than that in a calendar year since 2007. So, Chris, do you know the secret of how he's managed to rediscover some of his best tennis after such a dry spell in which many people, including myself, thought he wouldn't win another major? Yeah, a lot of us thought he would win another major, but never thought he'd get back to world number one. Uh, I think part of it is becoming a, a father. He became a father in... Uh, well, just under three years ago. The twins will be three later this month. Um, that forced some rethinking of his schedule. He had to work out how he was going to play, what time he was going to take off so that he didn't miss his children growing up, but at the same time he uh, was able to devote himself to his tennis. And I think it took a while for that to get going. He also had a couple of injury problems. He had a leg injury before Wimbledon a couple of years ago. He had a back injury for a while. It still flares up. We saw it flare up in his fourth-round match against yeah. Xavier Melis here. But I do think that uh, he's actually got the thing right. And I asked him earlier on, you know, where, where did this title start? And he went back to his semi-final victory over Novak Djokovic at the French Open last year. He said that was the one that really made me realize I could still be up there. But it's taken him, you know, several months to actually get the, the schedule right, get the, the match uh, plan right. And uh, it's all come good now. Well, despite proving many people wrong, he's not thinking of retiring at the top, is he? He's still got the motivation to continue because he's already planned which tournaments he'll be playing next year. But what do you believe he thinks he's got left to achieve? He's planned his outfit for 2014, I can tell you that, Adam. Oh, wow. Um, with, with his clothing company. Um, I don't know. I mean, he was asked that and he said, look, I could tell you I'm retiring today. But he says, no, I'm still enjoying it. I don't know how long. Uh, he said himself he wants his daughters to remember having seen him play. They, they were obviously there for the presentation ceremony today, but you know whether it's two and three quarters they'll remember him uh, playing, I doubt it. Um, so I think he wants to go on for at least two more years. But it'll depend what sort of level. I don't think he will enjoy just being there to make up the numbers and to maybe win two or three rounds and then be beaten by the, the, the you know future world number one at, uh, in, in the fourth round of a Grand Slam. I think he'll be 
out there as long as he feels he can win them or at least get to the final weekend. Tennis author and broadcaster Chris Bowers there. And Barry, that won't be music to Murray's ears that Federer is going to continue for a long while yet, but the only other man to have lost in his first four major singles finals was Ivan Lendl, his coach. So you could say he's got no better man in his corner to try and turn it around for him. Indeed, yes, it's a shared experience and no doubt from that Lendl will be able to find something that will will help Murray forward. And, and as Murray said in that heartfelt interview on the court, you know, he, he's getting closer, he really is, but he is playing in an era of absolute greats and uh, not just Federer, there's Djokovic and, and Nadal as well. And so, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, you just, you want so much from a British perspective for him to be able to, to, to win one of these things. And then I think once he does, there'll be many more to follow. But it's so hard to win that first one playing in the era that he is. Well, I'm confident, Barry, that he's not going to have a similar reaction to the Australian Open final of last year when he went on a dismal run for months and months in first-round exits for several tournaments in succession. I think this time he's got it all together mentally, hasn't he? And he's going to be able to bounce back from this. It may take a little while. It'll hurt for a little while. But he's got the perfect pick-me-up in just a few weeks' time, back at Wimbledon for the Olympics. Exactly that, Adam, yes. He can still come to Wimbledon and find himself you know, winning a medal for his country and maybe that's just the sort of the recovery he needs whereas had he wait another 12 months to come back to Wimbledon you know that might might rest uh, rather less easily on his mind. Well let's take a look at the rankings then. Roger Federer as we say is back up to number one after a gap of two years and two months. He's up to 11,075 points which is only 75 more than Djokovic so it's a loose grip he's got on it. Nadal falls back to number three and Murray can't climb from number four, even if he picks up the 750 points for winning Olympic gold. So he'll be stuck in the same spot he's been in for the whole year. This is the Tennis Weekly Podcast with Adam Bates. Now it's time to look at the ladies' singles final. And Serena Williams fought hard to come through 6-1-5-7-6-2 for her fifth Wimbledon singles crown against the first-time major finalist Agnieszka Radvanska. Now, it's a huge achievement, Barry, after what she's had to overcome in the last couple of years, including a life-threatening blood clot on the lung. It is. Two years ago, she triumphed here. And then in celebration after that, um, suffered a nasty injury to her foot with some broken glass. And what at first appeared or was reported as not to be too much actually was more serious. And she then had uh, her foot uh, treated and then operated on at one point. Out of that came this, this very nasty, threatening um, illness, the problem with the pulmonary embolism that she had, the blood clots on the lungs, and uh, obviously for a while they were very concerned about her health and indeed her life, but she obviously came through, but would she ever come back to, to win another major title? Well, this was her ecstatic reaction to regaining the Venus Rosewater dish. It definitely is high up there with the greatest. Obviously, the first one is always something so special. I'm glad I did it at home in the United States. So, But this one is right there with that one because I really feel like I never knew if I would ever hold up a trophy again. And it's it's probably the number one for me. You mentioned there you didn't know if you'd hold up a trophy again. The injury, the illness, how much of an achievement is this to, to get back in, not only get back competing, but get back and win there on centre court? Um, it's amazing. Like getting there and winning and doing it is getting there is one thing, and actually winning is another. So being able to do both is, uh, is I'm so, I feel so honoured, really.
it wasn't just the singles, of course. You were back out there this evening. I know. Oh how, my God. how hard was that? And <sighs> was there added motivation, the fact that you're out there with, with Venus, who's been through so much herself recently? I hate losing. Whether I'm singles, I promise you, I think I hate losing more in doubles. So um, it was definitely extra motivating for me to win in doubles. And I even got frustrated. I was so angry. I started pumping my fist. And yeah, so I really wanted it. I wanted it really bad. To get reaction from Serena's home country, I'm joined by the tennis journalist Ben Rothenberg, who writes for the New York Times, amongst others. And Ben, how has her achievement been received across the Atlantic? I think for all the talk that we have, and I know you obviously have more over there about the struggles of British tennis, but we also sort of obsess over how American tennis is struggling. And I think having Serena come back to win the way she did after having been forced out of the game for so long, it's really been a great vote of confidence in her and her legacy and also just the resilience of, that tennis can produce. And I think people here are very, very happy for her. And I think she's become more of a sympathetic character, I think, than she probably was. Yeah, and I'm sure that's partly due to the fact that she's had to overcome an awful lot after the last couple of years. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you saw how emotional she was during the trophy ceremony with Sue Barker. I mean, just all she really did think that she was on the verge of dying, and her her father said the same thing. They really weren't sure what was going to happen with her. I mean, a blood clot in your lung is nothing to take lightly. So I think that really this all put everything in perspective in her and let her know what tennis has done for her and what you know, maybe take some stress off of her just knowing that it's just tennis and so she can relax a little bit more than maybe she had before. And I think it's clearly given her some kind of crazed determination because her mum, Oracine, said afterwards that they would have had to have put her in an institution if she'd not won the final. Absolutely, but there is some sense on the other side of that that she seems to be getting a little more nervous than maybe she did before. I don't know if this is her feeling like she's in her 30s now and she doesn't have as many opportunities left, but you saw that more through the French Open and a little bit in this final where she seemed to sort of flinch more in the face of victory. Interesting you should say that, because I bet you were like me, and at one point, especially when she was five love up against Radvanska, you were probably thinking, hmm, let's try and get out all the statistics about the last double bagel in a Grand Slam, in a final at least. But she did manage to come through in the end, and one of the reasons for that, surely, was her serve. It was ridiculous over the past two weeks. Aces... Well, for the tournament, she smashed the previous Wimbledon record of 89, which was held by herself, and she served 24 of them in her straight-set semi-final victory over Azarenka to match the all-time record set by Kaya Kanepi, but having played a set less. Now, apart from that, what else impressed you about her game? I mean, that really is the first and foremost thing. I mean, she hit 100-something aces in only, I want to say, 17 sets or so, and that's well more than Federer or Murray did in at least about 10 more sets than that. I think. Yeah, it's and 102 it, altogether, by the way. 102, yes. And I think that was impressive. I think also her ability to get in the right zone and pull the margin in, which is something that she's been better at over the last 12 months or so since her comeback. She doesn't play with as much reckless abandon or aggression as she used to early in her career, which still worked for her. She won plenty of Grand Slams playing that way, but now the unforced errors are way down, the consistency is way up. Let's move on to Radvanska, shall we? Because it was the first time that she'd made it beyond the quarters of any major, and despite it looking as if it could have been a complete whitewash when she went five look down, she did put up a really honest fight, breaking twice in the second set after that rain delay, so credit to her. I mean, she's been she's been a very solid player all year. She's been... I guess from maybe late last year when she won a couple of titles in the Asian swing, she's been 
right there and has only really had problems against Victoria Azarenka in the whole year. I think something like her first six losses of the year all came to Azarenka and she was rolling over everybody else. I mean, she's got a great, very different game that I think can really impress a lot of people with her sort of guile and her creativity out there, which is something you don't always see in women's tennis. Well, here is the poll trying to remain positive despite the defeat. I'm still shaking so much, so um, I think I have the best uh, two weeks in my life. So, um, Of course, you know, I was just playing too good today, but I'm just very happy to, to be here in the final. I already had um, great memories from here, from 2005 when I won uh, Junior Wimbledon, and today I had the opportunity to, to win the uh, WT one, but um, I think it was not my day, and I'll try just next year, so um, we'll see. And it was okay. a shame, wasn't it, Ben, that she um, was held back by the respiratory problems that she'd been suffering with. Coughing before match point, I noticed, and blowing her nose afterwards as well. Yeah, it is unfortunate that these things happen. It's just bad timing for her. But at the same time, I think she did seem relatively happy with her effort. I mean, she clearly was a little choked up at the end, whether that she thinks that she can win, which she should think that she can win, because clearly she came very close. I, I do think that, that I don't know if she would have had much of a better shot at full health honestly the way Serena's been playing this week but it definitely was something of a factor we can say yeah agreed so back to all things Williams they had to hang around all day her and Venus on Saturday to wait for their ladies doubles final to commence just before 9.30 in the evening under the roof, unheard of. And they overcame last year's Roland Garros winners Lucie Hradetska and Andrea Lavatskova, 7-5-6-4. And it was particularly pleasing, for me anyway, Ben, to see Venus strike the winning ace to win their 13th major final together out of 13. It's been tr- that's, that's just the record there. They're 13-0 now in Grand Slam finals, which is really ridiculous when you think about how no one's ever come close to anything like that, Mark. It's almost it almost seems casual for them sometimes. We take it for granted how how much they've won when they enter the doubles. They just tend to win it almost always, and actually it helps their singles a lot too. There's a stat that the last nine times the Williamses have entered doubles at Wimbledon together, one of them has gone on to win the singles as well. And I think for Venus, this has been a really a big achievement for her. I mean, she really has had matches in singles where she's just struggled to move on court, where she's really just looked a shadow of her former self. In the first round against Elena Vesnina, she just couldn't do anything. You shouldn't yeah. see Venus Williams ever only winning five games at Wimbledon in a match, but that's what was happening. So I think even if this is the last Wimbledon of her career, as it may or may not be, I think this was a great note for them to go out on. Well, I'm going to push you there, Ben. Is it going to be her last Wimbledon? We don't know. I, I really don't know. It depends a lot on how things go the rest of the year, I think. Well, her mum, Oracine, was surprised that she's still playing given her Sjogren's syndrome, which leaves her energy largely out of control, as you mentioned. But she was determined to reach the Olympics, wasn't she? That was her major goal. And really, when you look at the struggle she's had recently, you understand just what a Herculean achievement it was for her to get her ranking up there, to get in there. It wasn't easy for the Americans. She had to get well into the top 50 to do that. I mean, it's been really been a lot of things that she had to do. And she did say that she never would have come back as early as she did if it hadn't been for the Olympics. Well, yes. what about Serena's future then? She's up to 14 major singles titles, but she doesn't possibly believe that Steffi Graf's open era record of 22 is attainable, does she? 22 may be a stretch at this point, but I think the next there's a little gap between her and the next person on the on the record list. And then there's a tie at 18, I believe, with between 
Navratilova and Chris Everett. And I think she'll, she can try to aim for that. There's no reason she can't. Even though she's 30, she probably has a fair number of years left in her. To the women's rankings now, to touch on that, it's semi-finalist Azarenka who replaces Sharapova as number one, with Radvanska climbing to number two, having had the opportunity of claiming top spot if she'd beaten Serena. But also, remarkably, looking at the women who began the year at number one and two in the world, that's Caroline Wozniacki and Petra Kvitová, neither of them are in the top five anymore. Well, a one-word answer from you, Barry. Will Serena Williams regain the number one ranking? Yes. I'm going with you as well. <laughs> Agreed. Now for a flabbergastingly astonishing Wimbledon story, this. On the final day before the deadline for wildcard applications, 31-year-old Liverpoolian Johnny Murray asked the unheralded Dane Frederick Nielsen if he'd pair up with him for just the fourth time. And the Sheffield resident had no idea he'd end up as the first British men's doubles champion since 1936. They played four five-set matches altogether and caused a huge shock in the semis by knocking out the defending champions Mike and Bob Bryan. I spoke to Johnny Murray earlier and he described what went through his mind when he woke up the morning after. My first thought was, is that trophy still there at the bottom of my bed or was it just a dream? Yeah, just had to pinch myself again just to check that I was the Wimbledon doubles champion. So, uh, no, delight still, obviously. I've had so many kind of uh, nice messages from friends and family and people I don't know and everything and it's still on a high really and enjoying the attention and everything and yeah I'm just uh, loving it really. I bet. Now let's go back to the start of this story. Just explain how and why you and Frederick decided to pair up together for Wimbledon. Well we've actually played a couple of times over, over the years. We've known each other for, for 10 or so years playing playing kind of the Challenger Tour together in similar tournaments and I mean, we've not actually played that that many times, but but we kind of we played one of the, the warm-up uh, tournaments in Nottingham before Wimbledon, and, and decided to, to to apply for a wild card for Wimbledon, and and then the rest is kind of history now, isn't it? So, was there a moment when you actually thought we wouldn't even be playing Wimbledon this year? Yeah, I mean, I, I uh, like literally two days before the entry deadline, I was actually signed in with somebody else, but but I, I actually missed in missed out on the, on the entry cut with him, so. I mean, I hadn't even thought about playing with Freddie really until literally the, the entry deadline date. Could have easily not happened. It's kind of kind of fate, you know. So when you knocked out the eight seeds, Koreshi and Roger, seven five in the fifth. I think that's when people started to sit up and take notice of you. But at which point did you believe that you could go on and win the thing? I mean, I think I think in the the, the next round in the quarter final where we were kind of backed against the wall in the fifth set, and then to come to a really strong game there and, and carry on to to to, to win a quite convincing fifth set in the end there that, to make the semis. I think that was just the kind of point where where we thought, you know, we we guys got a shot at anyone winning this thing. <laughs> and then you went and beat the defending champions, the Bryan brothers, unbelievably. So now share with us the feeling at the moment that you stepped out onto centre court for a Wimbledon final. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean it's hard to describe. Really, it's, it's something I've obviously dreamed about for since uh, since picking up a tennis racket. It's why why I started playing tennis in the first place, and I'd obviously never played on there before. But to kind of come down and walk onto the grass, just prepared to play to play on it, it was surreal. Really, and it was obviously a massive massive honour for me, and I'm just so pleased that I was able to kind of stay relaxed and enjoy it. So let's go to the match itself. You drew yourselves level at one set all, but then Freddie had to have a medical timeout for a wrist problem. How nervy were you feeling when that happened? Yeah, it's very nervous actually because we actually just broke to, to win the, to win the second set. And in that game, he, he kind of he kind of said he's really struggling with his wrist. He, he kind of felt something kind of snap in his wrist. And as soon as he said that, I was like, you know, he might not even be able to carry on. I mean, he had it strapped up, but he was really struggling to kind of hit over his backhand and 
and it actually when when, they, when the kind of rain came and we had to go in for for the roof to close, we actually had an opportunity. And Freddie actually had an opportunity to get his wrist checked out and have an ultrasound on it and just to, to see what kind of damage was done, if any. He just kind of got confirmation that it wasn't really serious, so that I kind of helped him because he he had got a little bit flat with it. It was brilliant stuff, and you got two points away in the fourth set tiebreak as I'm sure you can remember well. And to count instead, they hit back strongly to take it. But then you went three love up immediately in the fifth set. That wasn't supposed to happen. Your spirit was supposed to have been broken then. Um, now, that was when many would have felt maybe it's just a step too far. Why didn't you? I've done quite a lot of mental work recently, which which has really kind of helped me in that in that aspect. But, I mean, previously in, in this championship, we, we, we had three other five seconds before the final and, and we kind of come through those strong we, we just said to each other let's keep positive and keep going for it and we've done it before we can, we can do it again So what were you telling yourself when you reached championship point I saw you take a few heavy breaths <laughs> Yeah I mean uh, I was just you know trying to uh, not think about anything but, but, but what I was doing to kind of get up to my serve pick my spot and I was really happy with the way I kind of I served in that final game I think I made all six first serves and previously I probably probably wouldn't have done that so it was take a few deep breaths just try and think about the, 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 the point rather than uh, <laughs> winning Wimbledon you know <laughs> and describe the emotion when you did when Freddie put away that winning volley <laughs> well it's hard to really I mean it was obviously a relief to, to kind of to have it over and done with, you know, and on the first match point, quite, quite nerve wracking if it had gone back to juice, and then, you know, you never know. It, it was just an amazing feeling, you know, it's kind of both of our dreams kind of come true. So, apart from the glory and the status of being a Wimbledon champion now, what's the best thing that will happen as a result of your victory, do you think? Well, I think, I don't, I don't know really. I mean, I'm just, I'm just so happy for my family as well because they've, they've kind of. Stuck by me, you know, and, and sacrificed quite a lot for, for for me to for me to play tennis, and and you know it's a reward for them as, as much as it is me, and it and now it obviously gives me the opportunity to play uh, all the big tournaments, and, and my ranking's massive boost and everything. You've won one hundred and thirty thousand pounds each. How on earth do you contemplate spending that? Yeah, I mean, I, I hadn't really been thinking about the uh, the prize money, to be honest with you. Just the, the whole kind of prestige about playing at Wimbledon and, and, and playing on centre court, and, and that, that kind of took up all my uh, all my thoughts, really. But obviously, yeah, it's, it's a really big payday for me, and it's something that'll help me invest, reinvest in my tennis, and it'll help me with a few other little things as well. Barry Milne's an outrageous achievement, isn't it? Only their fourth tournament together, and neither of them have ever won an ATP tournament. Ridiculous. Absolutely. Uh, it's Roy of the Rovers stuff in, in tennis terms, isn't it? To, to fight off all the odds, be totally outsiders and, and nobody thinking, giving them a thought and they not giving themselves a thought or a chance. I'm sure when they stepped onto court for the first time in the competition that they were going to go as far as they did. But boy, did they deserve it. They're thoroughly good blokes as well. Epitomised by the moment in the third set tiebreak when Murray conceded a point, telling the umpire he'd flick the net with his racket despite nobody else seemingly noticing. And also, it was extra poignant for Frederick Nielsen too, as his grandfather Kurt was the last Dane to reach a Wimbledon final, but he passed away last year. Well, to summarise who won what elsewhere at Wimbledon, here's Adam Hunt. All eyes might have been on the men's final on Sunday, but there were plenty of other title matches going on at the All England Club this weekend. In the boys' singles, last year's champion Luke Saville reached the final once again, but fell short this time in straight sets to Philippe Peliwo. In the girls' final, Peliwo's countrywoman Eugenie Bouchard made it a clean sweep for Canada as she dispatched Alina Svitolina. 
Elsewhere, British pair Lucy Shuker and Jordan Wiley followed Andy Murray and Johnny Marais' lead by making the final in the ladies' wheelchair event, but the Dutch dream team of Jiska Griffoen and Anique van Koot were far too strong on the day, winning 6-1, 6-2. Tennis Weekly is a Sky Sports News Radio podcast. Adam Hunt there with details on our other Wimbledon champions. So it may be over for another year in terms of this big one, but the tennis circus moves on. And because of the Olympics squashing everything up together, there are no fewer than four ATP tournaments this coming week in Borstad, Stuttgart, Umag, and the last grass court event left in North America, Newport. Now, while many of the women have headed off to Stanford and Palermo, but not Radovanska, who was scheduled to travel to Sicily, as unsurprisingly, she's going to rest up. But if she'd won the title there, interestingly, she would have climbed to number one in the world. So we're coming to the end of play on Tennis Weekly for this week. But as is customary, Barry Milnes, you've got to pick a player of the week. Oh, boy. Can I pick two? Um, Federer was... uh... Obviously, the man who left with the Golden Prize today, uh, it, it has been a, an outstanding performance and you have really to tip your hat to him. But uh, honourable mention has to go to Andy Murray. So is he going to be your player of the week? We, we, we can only have one, Barry. Uh, <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, you've got to go with Federer because he walked off with first prize and he's number one in the world. Is there an alternative moment as well for you, Barry? Because for me, it, it can't be ignored. Rossol's Terminator-esque annihilation of Nadal. Yeah. What about you? Yeah, that was the perfect storm, wasn't it? Under the roof in that match against Rafa and a fifth set that I think is going to take some beating for sheer brilliance and total commitment, belief from somebody, again, a rank outsider who just found the zone, stayed in it and uh, never flinched from uh, the challenge to try and knock out you know, such a great champion as Rafael Nadal. And boy, did he do it. It was uh, quite an awesome display. Well, I'm not sure I've been enthralled by any sporting event quite like Wimbledon 2012. Thanks for listening to our guest Barry Milnes and me, Adam Bates, on this bumper edition of Tennis Weekly. You can contribute by tweeting at SSN Radio. And if you've liked what you've heard, we'd appreciate a review on iTunes. Next week, I'm excited to be exploring the future as we find out about the world's first interactive racket. For now, though, it's time for a lie down. See you next week. The Tennis Weekly Podcast. The greatest, unquestionably, he was tonight. At skysports.com slash radio and on iTunes. And the world's best is the best on a night to remember in New York. Tennis Weekly is a Sky Sports News Radio podcast.